Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Oh, yeah. We're back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. A new week, another episode. Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, welcome everybody back. Uh, apologies, sincere apologies for the episode that went up late two weeks ago. I feel awful. Normally we are up at midnight every night, central time on Wednesday, and Nathan made a boo-boo, and the episode didn't go up till 5 p.m. that day. I am so sorry. This is my make culpa time. Uh, I, I think it's great because I got to go onto Twitter and be like, oh crap, I forgot to tweet. Oh look, we tweeted. <laughs> Oh look, we tweet. Oh, we tweeted about how we fucked up. <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, apologies. It will not happen again. I get one every hundred and sixty something episodes. That's my that's my new bar. Every hundred and sixty episodes, I'm allowed to be twelve hours late. Um, that being said. Uh, it is a new week, and therefore things have happened since the last time we talked. Uh, this will be a little bit into the future now. We're, we're, we have an episode in the hopper, so this is a li- we're, mm-hmm. we're going to try and keep it a little brief. But, uh, David, any, any updates on the fun, very hilariously failed coup in Cuba other than Joe Biden ramping up sanctions? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, Joe Biden is ramping up sanctions. He's putting a chokehold on things. He, his foreign policy is it's the same as every president, right? It, it doesn't change. It just ramps up. And he's been ramping up. He uh, there was a come over it like a twenty page memo or something he sent to the the, the NSA, which is publicly available. Um, you can read it, and uh, it was talking about what was it talking about? Doing warfare. It was like something like more warfare on all fronts or war- more fronts. And he was referring specifically to you know internet attacks and and things like that, right? Yeah. And uh, so you could tell he was focusing on cuba and you could tell that it was going to be you know trying to be a subversive campaign much like you know i mean back in 2014 they tried to sponsor musicians to be in cuba and do counter-revolutionary music that Um, explains pitbull damn it i knew something explained (laughs) it um but you know i mean that's that's um, nothing new it just it made the focus obvious and it, it made it obvious that this was going to be a propaganda campaign and I mean we all know what a color revolution looks like and this is a color revolution um, so I mean obviously if time passes and especially with sanctions going up that makes things harder on Cuban citizens which we never won and that is the kind of thing that unfortunately can spark counter revolutionary fervor so in Cuba, it seems to be proven pretty strongly at this point that the sabotage effort is not working, and people are broadly still supporting the revolution. Um, but people do, you know, I mean that that's the kind of thing that wanes it. So that's a little that's a little scary as always, um, and that's just you know Biden's plan, right? Um, well, David's thinking Pedro Castillo officially yeah. announced as the president of Peru. Yes. Yes. That that has been made official. He is that. There's there's another. Uh, yes. In there in the was a pink wave. They went into their um, their elect. I think it was their electoral authority. Is it their electoral authority or their Supreme yeah the electoral Court? authority? Electoral authority. Um, every country operates that a little differently, and um, they basically upheld. They're like, no, the election results are good. No fraud. Yep. So then it made it nice and official. Yep. Um, that being said, it is time, as always, to jump into the reading for this week. Uh, we ended on a bit of a sour note, which uh, leaves me with some some mild trepidation that we may be picking up on a sour note. Uh, we were talking about the Freedmen's Savings Bank, which paid depositors 30% and charged for their services $318,753. Uh, at the date of closing, 
so far as is known, there was due to depositors $2,993,790.68 in 61,144 accounts. This was never paid. Oh, good. Just $3 million that was never paid out. That uh, that doesn't cause any issues with generational wealth or issues like that. $3 million in the the 19th century. Mm The assets amounted to $32,089.35. The rest was represented by personal loans and loans on real estate, which were practically uncollectible. The total business transacted by the Freedmen's Bank was extraordinary, considering that the bulk of its clientele had just emerged from slavery. Its total deposits on one time at one time reached $57 million. Thus, the most promising effort to raise the financial status of the best and thriftiest Negroes went down in the maelstrom of national corruption. It is difficult to overestimate the psychological effect of this failure upon Negro thrift. That is re- that is a very important paragraph right there, in my opinion. Yes. Um, uh, again, when when it comes to faith in the financial systems and faith that in 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 how this is supposed to work, and that you're told over and over, well, if you just save money and do it, you can pull yourself up, and slowly but surely, you'll 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 get there. And then to have all of that wiped out immediately after coming off the heels of slavery, um, I cannot imagine the psychological effect that would take on somebody. It would it would be it would be traumatizing, um, and justifiably so. Uh, but after all the amount of cash handled by the freedmen was small, and by far the most pressing of his problems as a worker was that of land. This land hunger, this land hunger, this absolutely fundamental and essential thing to any real emancipation of the slaves, was continually pushed by all emancipated Negroes and their representatives in every southern state. It was met by ridicule, by anger, and by dishonest and insincere efforts to satisfy it, apparently. The Freedmen's Bureau had much Confederate property in its possession, but the, seize, but the seizure of abandoned estates in the South came as a measure to stop war and not as a plan for economic rebirth. And we've talked about how that's a massive failure and you should have just torn the whole thing down. Just as the slaves were enticed from the South in order to stop the aid which they could give to rebels, in the same way the land of masters who ran away or were absent aiding the rebellion was seized. And this large body of land was the nucleus of the proposal to furnish 40 acres to each emancipated slave family. The scheme was further advanced when Sherman, embarrassed by the number of Negroes who followed him from Atlanta to the sea and gathered around him in Savannah and South Carolina, as a war measure, settled them upon the abandoned sea islands and the adjacent coast. We remember that from many, many chapters ago that that Sherman, you know, uh, basically, uh, what's the word? Uh, Went from... Hmm? Went from Atlanta to the coast, and I was just yeah. No, Sherman's march to the sea. He he seized yeah. uh, seized isn't the right word, but he he repurposed all this land and basically said it's yours. And we saw how that was a smashing success and how that worked out really really well. And then it was revoked by I can't remember if it was Johnson or Lincoln. It was one of those two assholes. Um, I think it was Johnson. I think it was too. Um, basically said nope nope, give it all back. Confiscated property was in some cases condemned or sold on the order of the federal courts for unpaid taxes, and the title vested in the United States. Thus, the Freedmen's Bureau came into the possession of nearly 800,000 acres of farmland with control over it, except the right of sale. This land was in Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, Louisiana, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Tennessee. There was very little in Alabama and Florida, and none in Texas. 
The Bureau intended to divide up this land and allot it to the freedmen and the white refugees, but much of it was tied up with leases. And after all, despite the large amount, there was never enough to give the freedmen alone an acre apiece. So your whole 40 acres thing is already right out the window with what you've what you've seized. A million acres among a million farmers meant nothing. And from the beginning, there was need of from 25 to 50 million acres more if the Negroes were to be installed as peasant farmers. Against any plan of this sort was the settled determination of the planter South to keep the bulk of Negroes as landless laborers and the deep repugnance on the part of the Northerners to confiscating individuals' property. God, it goes back to time in a fucking morium. The, the this sanctimonious love of property and and what oh, it represents that's, that's enshrined in the constitution uh the french revolution which came shortly after the american revolution that had a huge amount of inspiration on the uh, whole american ethos and the you know freedom and liberty and things like that because those guys all collaborated um you know i mean that that the very first right is property, right? Property is so, it's, it's, it's always been sanctimonious in liberalism. Yep. Even Thaddeus Stevens was not able to budge the majority of Northerners from this attitude. Added to this was the disinclination of the United States to add to its huge debt by undertaking any large and costly social adjustments after the war. To give lands to free citizens smacked of paternalism. Excuse me. Of all the paternalistic bullshit you preach, you called slavery fucking paternalism. You'll get away with that with a straight face, but you won't actually do the redistribution of wealth that you fucking should to make up for it? Fuck off. It came directly in opposition to the American assumption that any American could be rich if he wanted to, or at least well-to-do. Again, what a bullshit fucking assumption to live off of. Like, what... That core ethos is rotten, and it's rotten to its core, and we know that from capital. We know that from all the other things we've seen about how the accumulation of wealth happens. Accumulation of wealth happens at the dispossession of another. It happens at the barrel of a gun more often than not in history. The concept that anyone can get rich, no, not everyone can get rich. By definition, not everyone can get rich. The system is built on that concept. If there is not a poor underclass for you to exploit, not everyone can get rich. And this concept is poison. And God damn it needs to be stamped out. But Nathan, you're doing too much dialectics. That's too dialectical. I, I fucking can't. I'm, I'm on one this week and I'm not happy. And it stubbornly ignored the exceptional position of a freed slave. Indeed, it is a singular commentary on the attitude of the government to remember that the Freedmen's Bureau itself during the first year was financed not by taxation, but by the toil of ex-slaves. The total amount of rents collected from lands in the hands of the Bureau, paid mostly by Negroes, amounted to 400000 And curiously enough, it was this rent that supported the Freedmen's Bureau during the first year. Surprise and ridicule has often been voiced concerning this demand of Negroes for land. It has been regarded primarily as a method of punishing rebellion. Motives of this sort may have been in the minds of some northern whites, but so far as the Negroes were concerned, their demand for a reasonable part of the land on which they had worked for a quarter of a millennium was absolutely justified. And to give them, it was. And to give them anything less than this was economic farce. Go fucking off, Du Bois. On the other hand, to, give, to have given each one of a, the million Negro free families a 40-acre freehold would have made a basis for real democracy in the United States that might easily have transformed the modern world. 
The law of June 21st, 1860 opened public land in Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, Arkansas, and Florida, but comparatively few of the freedmen could take advantage of this offer. Terms and conditions fucking apply. The Bureau gave some assistance in transporting families, but most of the Negroes had neither stock nor farm implements, and the whites in those localities bitterly opposed their settling. Only about 4,000 families out of the nearly 4 million people acquired homes under this act. The Sherman Order gave rise to all sorts of difficulties. The Negroes were given only possessory titles. Then the owners came back, and immediately there was trouble. The Negroes protested. What is the use of giving us freedom if we can't stay where we were raised and own our own house where we were born and our own piece of ground? It was on May 25th, 1865 that Johnson and his proclamation of pardon had provided easy means whereby all property could be restored except the land at Port Royal, which had been sold for taxes. Yeah, so it was fucking Johnson that came in and fucking ruined this. Good, good. General Howard came to Charleston to make arrangements, and the story is characteristic. At first, said a witness, the people hesitated, but soon as the meaning struck them that they must give up their little homes and gardens and work for others, there was a general murmuring of dissatisfaction. There should have been a general making of heads on pikes. Murmuring of dissatisfaction is the kindest thing that could have fucking done at that moment. David, take over. I'm going to have an aneurysm. Sure, I wanted to kind of call back to the the initial protest because they they were saying, you know, what good is a freedom if you know, we can't stay where we are. And that's something that you always have to remember too, is that, you know, dispossessed people don't just want to get and get up and haul off to God knows where, where there's quote unquote opportunity, right? A reservation maybe, if you would. (laughs) Um, People, you know, I mean, they need to be around their community connections and, and that tends to happen a lot where you're from. Um, And so, you know, to, to relocate people, is just is is absolutely debilitating every bit as much as robbing them financially. And they're not. And the here the problem here is they're not even talking about offering to re. I mean, again, you they Du Bois doesn't get into it, but the terms of when you go back to you know comparatively, you can take advantage. The bureau gave some assistance in transporting yeah. families. Some assistance in transporting families. What does that even mean? I mean, what kind of assistance are we talking about there? And the option is you can pick up and move to a place you've never been before that you have no connection and no no relation to and try and start fresh from scratch fuck that no they were entitled to the black belt they were entitled to the land in which they were born raised and worked and and the produce product of their labor made a bunch of fucking white guys rich well i mean and also wealth you know there's always a point in time and and it depends on things like you know trade and and imperialism and stature of, of a country and whatever but but wealth generally is fairly tied to location Right. Once wealth's in one spot, it's pretty world altering for an enormous amount of it to move. All of the wealth in the South was built directly on their back. So you're not only saying pick up and haul off and go somewhere where you have no connections and just start the hell over, but go away from where all this wealth was accumulated off your backs. Yeah. It's disgusting. General. Yeah. General Howard was called upon to address them, and to cover his own confusion and sympathy, he asked them to sing. Immediately, oh, come, does that, why does that not sound racist? That's racist. That's 100% racist. Yeah. Um, immediately, an old woman on the outskirts of the meeting began. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, Howard wept. No, well, that, that says, she started, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and then Howard wept. Well, Okay. 
punctuation is occasionally important, and we have to. Nobody knows the yeah. trouble I've seen. Howard Wept is not a song, David. That is not a that is not a hymnal that someone goes to. But nobody knows the trouble I've seen is very appropriate in this moment, and it made the man weep. No, I was just I, I I misread it, but I was reading it like the man was weeping out. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Like wept is a way to talk. No, which is also wrong. No, there's a very impassioned old woman on the outskirts that began Sing, singing a very singing poignant it, yes. song. <laughs> The colored landholders drew up an illiterate petition to Andrew Johnson, the poor white expressing sad feelings over his decree and begging for an acre and a half of land each. But naturally, nothing came of it. For President Johnson, forgetting his own pre-war declaration that the great plantations must be seized and divided into small farms. Oh, a campaign the- promise that he forgot to follow through on. That, yeah, whoopsie, that doesn't whoopsie feel, doodle. That doesn't feel reminiscent of today. True, but... that. Judging by this book, I don't know if anybody ever broke more campaign promises than Andrew Johnson. Uh, I mean, I don't think he even campaigned. He was already in offices. These are promises he made when he actually held power. And then post-war, they stopped. So, like, during the war, he's making a lot of promises. These are these are, these are are war promises. Was, was he never on the, the Lincoln campaign as the vice he president? He was, but he wasn't campaigning for that. At the time, he was talking, I guarantee you, so when he's talking, when they're talking about his own pre-war declaration that the great plantations must be seized and divided into small farms, that kind oh, of that talk- Oh, that's probably as, what was he, governor? No, I would guarantee you that's probably when he's in, because when he was governor, the Civil War wasn't happening. Pre-war, though, okay. as it's happening, I guarantee you, when you want to, if you want to get a bunch of people to fight for you, what are you going to tell them? That we're going to seize the plantations, we're going to take it all back, we're going to divide it up equally. And then as soon as that moment actually came and you could have done that, he turned chicken and fucking ran. Yeah. Um. Forgetting his own pre-war declaration that the great plantations must be seized and divided into small farms, declared that this land must be restored to its original owners, and this would be done if owners received a presidential pardon. The pardoning power was pushed, and the land all over the South were uh, rapidly restored. Negroes were dispossessed, the revenue of the Bureau reduced, many schools had to be discounted, so they were already cutting school budgets. Discontinued. So again. Oh, that's even worse. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One's a sale at Aldi. The other means the schools don't exist anymore. Yes, I was thinking they would like discount admit like they're giving less money to each oh, school. No, no, no. They just fucking had to get rid of the schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the bureau became no longer self-supporting, and its whole policy was changed. In December 1865, the bureau had 768,590 acres of land. In 1868, there were only 139,644 acres left. This is like an eighty percent drop. That's a enormous. Yeah, that's a massive reduction in the land that they're that they're caretakers mm-hmm. of, and much of this unimproved and unfertile. For a so long time, so they left time, them the shit land. They left them the shit yeah. land. The only land that wasn't yeah. taken back was land that nobody wanted. For a long time, there still persisted the idea that the government was going to make a distribution of land. The rumor was that this was to be made January 1st, 1865, and for months before that, Negroes all over the South declined to make contracts for work and were accordingly accused of laziness and insubordination. The restorations of the lands not only deprived Negroes in various ways of a clear path toward livelihood, but greatly discouraged them and broke their faith in the United States government. So if I'm the reading that right, they they had to go back to, of course, the sharecropping type after their land yeah. was pulled away. 
Yeah, because this was this and, is the equivalent of a the the way I read this, and and I don't I don't mean this to sound down denigrating in any way, but this is the equivalent of like a Facebook meet, uh, like a like a rumor going, guys, guys, on the first of January they're going to give land back, land's coming back, it's coming back. You don't have to do anything. They're going to give the land back, and everyone buys into it. And during that time. Why would you enter into contract? Why would you start work? If you think you're going to be getting 40 acres of land, you're not going to enter into some bullshit laboring contract that you shouldn't have to enter into because you think you're going to get something. No, I, I agree. I'm just, I'm making a comparison, um, kind of to the narrative when, when they couldn't find enough workers. Never mind that, that 600,000 workers have died and nobody is taking that tragedy portion of it seriously. Um, and let alone why would you want to go back to work, you know, in the danger right now if you have to, right? When there was a tiny growth in the the unemployment benefits there, what was it like an extra three hundred? Um, mm-hmm. As soon as the drumbeat started with "we don't have enough workers, we don't have enough workers," that whole campaign was to roll that back to the normal amount. Yeah, um, you know, to c- cut it back the three hundred dollars, and you're seeing a, a much more exaggerated and impactful version of that. But kind of here, right? As soon as they went, hey. We can't abuse and essentially re-enslave these guys. We have a problem. The big, powerful complaints came up, and things got rolled back. Yeah, and and this was this wasn't even a rollback. This was they start accusing them of laziness. It was a rollback to slavery. It was a rollback to slavery because that's exactly what it is. It's a rollback to this is a group of people that think for whatever reason. Again, I don't I, I don't know the, the the methods of the time, but apparently there was a very firmly held conviction that on January first, eighteen sixty five there was going to be land distributed. And so, therefore, these people did not want to engage in bullshit contracts. They didn't want to engage in menial labor. They didn't want to engage in the kind of things that that theoretically they think we are going to get out of. They're going to be gifting us land. We're going to be able to be our own master and, and control our own destiny. And that got them accused of laziness and insubordination because they didn't want to kowtow to whatever bullshit was going on that the that the you know the ruling class wanted to dictate at them it's it's insane yeah i mean that well that's even baseline marxism right you only work because you're dispossessed you only work because you don't have the property obviously every one of those contradictions is way more myopic and extreme and and you know when you're dealing with freedmen Right, and this is not a cla- this is not like the laziness and insubordination. Laziness at this point might as well translate to didn't want to work for me for slavery wages. Yeah, like yeah, that's I mean, what that's this exactly. translates to, which is exactly what your point was earlier that th- that people don't people not wanting to go in and die to work a fast food job right now are not lazy; they are rational. <laughs> They are people that right. recognize their that that this is not a smart thing to do, and I shouldn't do it for my own well being. Which again, if you thought in four months you were going to be given forty acres from the government or any parcel of land for the government that you could work, I mean, why you? It would be the equivalent. You would not go work a a, a job in 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 poverty conditions when you think you're about to rise up to a a class of self-sustainment when you could mm-hmm. you you could be your own master you can control your destiny this is not people don't want to work that argument is bullshit and we've attacked it again and again and again people don't want to work under the conditions that capitalism imposes upon them these disappointments and discouragements did not for a moment stop the individual efforts of exceptional and lucky Negroes to get hold of land, and the cheapness of the land enabled them to make purchases on a considerable scale where they could get hold of money or 
where they could get hold of a money wage, the land of hold the land holdings of Negroes increased all over the South. In South Carolina, the gradual subdivision of the land showed that poor people, colored and white, were slowly getting hold of divided plantations. Some 33,000 plantations were divided among 93,000 small farmers. The Virginia Negroes acquired between 80,000 and 100,000 acres of land during the late 60s and early 70s. There were soon a few prosperous Negro farmers and 400 to 1,000 acres of land and some owners of considerable city property. Georgia Negroes had bought, by 1865, 396,000... sorry. 1875. 1875, thank you. 396,658 acres of land assessed $1.2 million, and added to this, they had town and city property assessed at $1.2 million. Of Arkansas in 1875, Nordoff said, of the 40,000 Negro voters in the state, it is believed that at least one in 20 owns either a farm or a house and a lot in town. This would give but 2,000 such independent landholders, a small number but yet a beginning, showing that even amidst the intense and incessant political turmoil of the last seven years, a part of the colored men have been persistently industrious and economical. All of this was the record of the exceptional and lucky freedmen. After all, they... No, after all they owned in 1870, less than one-tenth of the land which they ought to have possessed, and the wages of nine-tenths of the black laborers were low and seldom paid in cash or with regularity. Wesley gives figures showing annual wages in southern states to have ranged from $89 to 150 in 1867 and 1868. On the other hand, this demand for land by government action and the increased disposition of the vote... Oh, increased disposition to vote public funds for the benefit of the pauperized masses incensed the planters. In every southern state, the South, from 1868 to 1876, stressed more and more the anomaly of letting people who had no property vote away the wealth of the rich. The strongest statement of the case against the black legislature of South Carolina was that they paid almost no taxes upon property. They, who for the most part had only the, had, only had the right to hold property in 1866... To be clear, I just want to go back a paragraph, and I'm sorry. Um, I yeah. did the the currency, uh, the inflation calculation. $150, oh the high end wages. So when Wesley, so I, I just want to put this in context because I do think I, I think it's important. Wesley gives okay. figures showing annual wages in southern states to have ranged from $89 to $150 in 1867 to 68. $150 annual wages today would be $2,870. Christ, two grand for the for their yearly wages, and imagine the labor that is being done for those wages because it's not fucking simple yeah. labor. This isn't no, a fast no, food. I'm not. I am not denigrating fast food workers at all. This isn't a fast food job. This isn't. This isn't the kind of labor we think of today where it would be a minimum wage job. This is so far below minimum wage. This isn't even conceivable. Yeah, this is the work they were doing as slaves. This is plantation farm work at 1870-level technology, if the plantation owners even cared to purchase that. And that, so it's 18, it's, you know, it's, it's you're doing that kind of labor. you got to imagine full-time for $2,000. Oh, yeah. $2, yeah, that's, that's for dusk to, do- dawn to dusk. For yeah. $2,000. Just ridiculous stuff. Um, I also wanted to point out in the in the next paragraph, you know, Du Bois kind of called out the bullshit on this, and this is this is still a very big right wing cry when they talk about you know taxes is is and, and they don't ever want to pay the taxes, but as soon as as soon as they do, even if they pay lower rates than other people, 
oh, I paid more property tax than that person. Well, that's because you have more property. That's, I, I just... Oh, my brain's going to... Uh, this is going to be the episode that gives me an aneurysm. This is going to be the one. <laughs> this charge against the poor, frequent as it always is in democratic movements, is not valid. The first attempt of democracy, in which includes previously disenfranchised poor, is to redistribute wealth and income. And this is exactly what the Black South attempted. The theory is that the wealth and the current income of the wealthy ruling class does not belong to them entirely, but is the product of the work and striving of great millions. Hell yeah! And that bef- and that before these millions ought to have a voice in its more equitable distribution, and if this is true in modern countries like France and England and Germany, how much more true was it in the South after the war where the poorest class represented the most extreme case of theft of labor that the world can conceive, namely chattel slavery? Go the fuck off, Du Bois! On yeah, the, uh, he was not fucking around. He is that, not that fucking around in this chapter, and I'm fucking loving it. On the other hand, there is not the slightest doubt but that the South had a right to demand of the nation that the whole of the burden of this readjustment of wealth should not fall on the, upon the planters. Guilty as they were of the supreme exploitation of labor, their guilt was shared with the rest of the nation, just as the rest of the nation had for centuries shared the profits of the slave system. Amen. It would be it would have been fair and just for the cost of emancipating the slaves and giving them land to be equitably shared by the whole of the United States. Moreover, the increased taxation of which the South so bitterly complained was not wholly for social uplift. It took mainly the form of, one, restoration of injured property, two, restoration of capital investment, lost or injured, as in the case of railroads, three, the expense of a new system of public education. Four, the expense of carrying on a government with enlarged functions. Only the last two directly benefited the black worker. There has been a destruction and disappearance of invested capital through the war, an emancipation which represented the greater part of the whole invested capital of the South except land. The value of the land decreased enormously because of the disappearance of slave labor and the destruction of a whole industrial system. Accurate figures are out of the question. A report to the House of Representatives 42nd Congress gives these estimates. The total assessed value of property in 1860, including slaves, was... Uh, th- th- uh, 4.36 billion. 4.3 4. 3, 3, 3, billion 6, or 3. trillion? Million, thousand million. That's billion. Billion. So 76 billion today. So it was 76 billion today. Um, yeah, 76 billion today. In 1870, it was 2 billion, a loss of 1.6 billion in slaves and 506, 586 million in other property. The total loss in the South by the war in property, assets, and debts, state and Confederate, has been estimated at $5 billion. These were the losses of capital. But what of the losses of the 9 million laborers represented not so much by positive loss as by negative deprivation and exploitation for centuries? The 19th century assumed that universal suffrage would prevent the state from falling into the power of forces inimicable to the masses. It might and did leave power in the hands of property and invested capital, but it left them less chance to oppress unduly the laboring class insofar as that class was thrifty and intelligent. But suppose labor was not intelligent and had been so long enslaved that shiftlessness became a virtue. 
It seemed clear that in America and in all leading countries in the latter half of the 19th century, the dictatorship of wealth and capital would be modified in some degree by reference to the will of the masses of laborers. Oh, dear God, if that was only a true statement. In this industrial peace and progress toward high standards of living for the masses would be assured, would be secured without disturbing the basis of capitalistic production. Thus, the guidance and dictatorship of capital for the object of private profit were not to be questioned or overthrown, but it must maintain that ascendancy by controlling the public opinion of the laboring class. This was accomplished and, on the whole, easily accomplished by the power to give and withhold employment from people who were without capital, the power to fix wages within certain wide limits, the power to influence public opinion through the prestige of wealth, news, and literature, and the power to dominate legislatures, courts, and offices of administration. Holy shit. That's a paragraph. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a paragraph. And he's, I mean, he's very explicit about... How, you know, if it's not economically equal, the, the democracy is not democratic. No. He's also, extre- this is an extremely Marxist take. Like, mm-hmm. this is a hard and fast, di- like, understanding of capital, understanding the relations of capital, understanding how the actual system works. Um, I'm going to read this again. Thus, the guidance and dictatorship of capital for the object of private profit were not to be questioned or overthrown. Liberalism. The core of liberalism right there. But it must maintain the ascendancy by controlling the public opinion of the laboring class. Okay, you have, you have to understand that the laboring class have a vote and therefore are people that you must sway in one way or another because they have, they have agency in this system. This was accomplished and on the whole easily accomplished by the power to give and withhold employment. We have seen this time and time again. The precarity is what keeps capitalism going. Capitalism needs precarity. Mm-hmm. And that ability to withhold employment is the power that, that capital capital holds over everyone. When you're when you are paycheck to paycheck, you will do anything to survive. You have to. That's the nature of the beast. Um it, it is it is what happens, and that is their greatest greatest power they have over anyone uh the power to fix wages within certain wide limits we know that we've talked about that in capital that that you know your you know your ability to set your wages and determine what wages are that controls how much people can rise up if you don't raise wages people cannot rise above a certain level it is just not ever going to happen that is the power you hold uh and the power to influence public opinion through the prestige of wealth Hello, we just talked about fucking Bezos and Bronson and and fucking Elon, you know, going to space and and acting as if they are basically entities unto themselves, you know, Bill Gates and the 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 philanthropy and all this other stuff that goes on that that brings you this prestige just from having money. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that's kind of always a thing, right? You know, that there was that was an old baseline Trump thing. Uh, was oh look, he's he's a wealthy businessman. That's he's got to run for president. Even better op, even better, even better observation. That that's dead on. Mm-hmm. That a guy that literally his only qualification was I got rich, therefore I should be the leader of you. Like that yeah. is capitalism distilled down to its purest essence, right there. Um, through the uh, through the influence of public opinion, through the prestige of wealth, news, and literature. 
again, they've been there's there's been uh, the what is it the Iowa Writers Workshop. They've been talking about how literature, how the CIA influenced literature back during the the sixties and seventies. Uh, oh order- yeah, well, and and again, they don't have to that much. The, the wealthy own that media, and so we talk about this all the time. It's why we have our current events for the most part, uh, because U.S. media, right? They, there is a certain level where, of course, the CIA is hands-on. There's been, you know, operation after operation that have been documented to, to do that kind of thing. Um, but in addition, they don't have to be, right? You, you Like, the biggest way the, these agencies work is they find a bunch of people with the same interests, and they pay a few of them to, like, lead those people or platform, or they, you know, they ask them, hey, platform these people or whatever. And this is something that just enhances what's already occurring. At this point, we're just talking about, obviously, before them, what, what was already occurring, right? Wealthy people get to control the media. They get to control, at this point, who gets printed in, in the newspapers. You know, now who goes on TV, um, things like that. You know, that, and that, that's a power of wealth that goes above and beyond any formal government power. Yeah. And the power to domi- dominate legislatures courts and offices of administration again there is no two parties there is one party and they're beholden to capital this yeah. whole system is built at its beholdens to capital so again that paragraph right there may be the single most distilled marxist observations mm-hmm. that du bois has made to date in this book um and they're well, dead and on it's it's dead on and it's talking directly about i mean the, the american system at as it is, every word of that still stands, but he was talking about it directly during the Reconstruction period, too. So, you know, it, it's directly related to um, American history. So it's very, very applicable to anyone, you know, in the United States with us. Um, it's it's just so well put and, and applicable. It's a good, well-distilled paragraph. Yes. The building and buttressing of new and more powerful capitalistic imperialism was slow and difficult, and with purposeful leadership, labor could enormously curtail the power of capital and bring nearer a critical time when the dictatorship of capital must yield to the dictatorship of labor, when general well-being would replace individual profit as the object of industry. This was not so clear in detail in the middle of the 19th century as it is now. There were Democrats like Sumner and Stevens who sensed the new power which supercapital was beginning to assert over labor and particularly over universal suffrage. Still, it seemed to them that the right to vote in the hands of the intelligent mass could dictate the form of any state that it wished. This goes back to a point you made two episodes ago about idealism. That's an ideal. Yeah. That's an absolutely idealist take on how to hold power and how to maintain and how to to achieve your end goals. Um, so dead on, dead on to you because I think I challenged that a little bit, and uh, I'm I'm wrong because that's that's 100 percent an idealist statement right there. Um, still, it seemed to them that the right to vote in the hands of yeah, yeah 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 we got that. The difficulty was that the mass of labor was particularly black labor, or the difficulty was that the mass of labor and particularly black labor was not intelligent. That hurts, Du Bois. They freely admitted, therefore, that it would be better to give the right of suffrage only to those Negroes who were intelligent, and particularly those who, by economic opportunity, would amass some little capital. Nevertheless, they felt that since the South compelled them to choose between universal suffrage and disenfranchised landless labor in the control of landholders and capitalists, with increased political power based on the disenfranchisement of labor, the right of suffrage, even in the hands of the poor and ignorant, gave better chances for the ultimate economic justice than their disenfranchisement. That statement's 100% true. Yes, that calculus tracks for me. 
Yeah. Yeah, but again, I mean, that's that's what he's saying with, they, they still couldn't break out of that idealist. You know, if you have the power to vote, you have the power. Um, because, it, of course, it makes sense, right? If they if they can all vote, they, they wanted this, like, just the intel- intelligent ones, but that would take away most of the masses. That would take away the democratic power. And so they couldn't hedge their masses at all, right? And so they thought, well, it's... it's um, um, strategically smart. I can't think of the word. Strategically smart works for me. Sure. Um, to give them universal suffrage, they were actually just as in favor of this. Only the educated masses uh, get to vote. There, I, I guess they were very, very, very just obsessed with that back then. Um, but it still shows this idea that they think they can vote. Um, but they're not worried about them leveraging their economic power, right? Because they're not worried about them having economic power. They think they'll just vote their way out. So it's still, it's much more practical. I think that was the, the, the word I was looking for. It's much more practical in a sense, but it's still idealist. Yes. It was for this reason that they advocated universal suffrage for the emancipated slaves. They were offered no middle ground. There were in, they were there were in the South only spasmodic signs that any powerful body of public opinion was willing to admit the Negro to the right of suffrage, no matter how intelligent he became, or to admit white labor without nullifying its vote by giving the, to capital the power based on disenfranchised blacks. Yet without some acceptance of a labor vote, the modern state could not endure. And while the cost of introducing the sudden change in the South was great, yet the action of the dominant South left no alternative. It was either universal suffrage or modified slavery, and in either case, increased political power in the nation for the former slave oligarchy. Take it away, David. Moreover, it is certain that unless the right to vote had been given the Negro by federal law in 1867, he would never have gotten in America. That, that's, that, that's I mean, emphasis on that. Yeah, true. That absolutely tracks, you know. Um, that gradualism just does not work. No, you have to fight for every incrementalism inch. This, is bullshit. Stop believing yeah. in it. Yeah, this was the ultimate fight, and then everything since then is, of course, fighting for you know new rights and new freedoms. But it's it's almost a enforcement, like a, a putting to use of what was fought here. None of that happens without this. You know, I lost. Oh. Uh, there never has been a time since when race propaganda in America offered the slightest chance for colored people to receive American citizenship. There would have been, therefore, perpetuated in the South and in America a permanently disenfranchised mass of laborers. And the dictatorship of capital would, under those circumstances, have been even more firmly implanted than it is today. So this is Du Bois kind of doing that, that like, the right of the vote, the right to vote and voting is kind of empty, Right. It's very little power. It's not power that actually matters. It's not actually freedom. And he's he's looking at that materialistically, but he's also saying like, you still want to have it instead of not. Yes. and this is why. Yes, because you and, and this this goes for every form of rights. When it comes mm-hmm. to when it comes to finding, you have to push. You have to take any gain you can get at the moment, and you have to go as far as you can with it because capital. It, it's the ratchet effect. You know for a fact that liberalism in and of itself is going to attempt to revert and and go back a step and go back to whatever the status quo is that keeps it at its at its most enshrined and most difficult to overthrow. And so if you do not make these concrete gains at the moment when the strike is relevant, you're never going to get them. And you may never get that opportunity again. That's what the point's pointing out. 
if they didn't yep. strike at this moment for universal suffrage, they may never have gotten that opportunity again. And you don't know when the next opportunity is going to come or if it's going to come. Certainly and naturally, the slaves were far more ignorant and poverty-stricken than the mass of northern white laborers. A dictatorship of federal power was therefore set up in the first Freedmen's Bureau Bill, which would have furnished them land and schools and protected their civil and economic rights until they were ready for universal suffrage or had learned by using it. The bill, as finally passed, left out the provision for land and most of the provisions for education. How convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Negroes themselves continued on-demand land when they themselves continued, oh, continued to, I don't know why I read that as on. The Negroes themselves continued to demand land when they had, were enfranchised by the Reconstruction Bill of 1867, but this evoked shrieks of anger from property in the South and apprehension from property in the North. There arose in the South an extraordinary situation which a few scholars have studied in its economic aspects. First, there was black labor in the main and ignorant, main ignorant and poor, but with some leaders of intelligence backed in part by the military power of the North. Secondly, there was white exploitation, which in the South had been based on the ownership of land and labor, and which was now widely impoverished, but still left with most of the land, some capital, and large influence. There was in addition to these the mass of impoverished and ignorant white peasants and laborers. This to there were added a number of northern immigrants with smaller or larger amounts of capital. It is idle to speculate as to just how the situation could have been avoided. Of course, it would not have arisen if slavery had continued. Moreover, there would have been less evident catastrophe and turmoil immediately if slavery had been continued under another name, in accordance with the efforts of the southern states under the Johnson Reconstruction Plan. But this simply meant a postponement of the trouble. Eventually, the complete agrarian capitalistic system, based on the ownership of both land and labor, had to disappear from America and the world, and its disappearance had to spell revolution involving a vast transfer of capital and of political power. In the form of annulling property and slaves, with indemnity to the slave owners, and seeking to put into the South a laboring class without political power. This would have been an impossible solution because this laboring class would have been thrown into even more direct competition with the white laborers the land over, a fact which had already been a cause of civil war, and it would have involved an attempt to capitalist autocracy without the corrective universal suffrage among a third of American laboring class. And again, notice he calls it uh, the... Where did it go? I lost my word. The corrective of universal suffrage of the American laboring class. Moreover, the capital to indemnify the slave owners must have come out of the wealth that part of the country whose capital was being taxed to pay the staggering cost of a war to overthrow political power based on enslaved labor. Northern capital would not consent to restore Southern loss from investment in slaves, much less if this restored capital were to be used to compete with capital in the North. There, this ensued in the South, a contest for the ultimate dictatorship of the state in conjunction with universal suffrage for black and white. The temporary dictatorship was set up by the federal government, represented and had to represent, in essence, the attitude of northern capitalists, because of course it always did. The parties that hoped to dominate this dictatorship, all of them, lacked capital. The planter had been impoverished by the war. The small capitalists from the North, who had come brought 
who had come south brought little to invest, but expected to accumulate capital on the spot. And the poor white represented the impoverished peasantry and labor class, as well as a petty bourgeois of small merchants and professional men. Here, then, was the situation, and what had to follow. The planters had to move towards the control of the political power of the newly enfranchised labor, both black and white. One can see such movements in the consent of Beauregard and Longstreet in Louisiana, Alcorn in Mississippi, and Hampton in South Carolina to Negro suffrage, and their willingness to concede something of economic power to the black voters. But this movement, which would have been comparatively simple under the ordinary organization of capital and labor in the modern countries, was complicated by three facts. First, there came in a new eager class of competing capitalists who proposed to share with the planters the dictatorship of labor. Secondly, the movement of the planter class to attract black labor with economic concession met the immediate and bitter fear and opposition of the poor whites, not simply of the mass of half-starved white peasants and farmers, but of the merchants, the former slave overseers, and the managers, men who proposed to join planters as exploiters of labor. And that, guys, is going, guys, gals, non-binary pals, is going to end it for this That's week. That's a nice little uh, ride. You make we're going to figure out what thirdly means. We, no, okay. not even a little bit. Um, this, uh, this uh, thirdly is like a hundred, is like a, a page and a half down, and we're not getting there this week, so I'm sorry. Uh, but we'll get to thirdly next week, uh, as we as we often do with Du Bois and leave him hanging. Um, again, we got through eight pages this week. I apologize. This was this is this whole chapter has been mm-hmm. dense, and it's very dense. And we're gonna stop as we need to. Also, I was uh, I've had a rough week, and I I needed to yell a little bit. So I I appreciate all of you uh, coming along for the ride as I did that. Um, and got some of that rage out, and Du Bois is just going off. This whole whole section is just having a real mm-hmm. one, as it were. So, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We do read books. Uh, there are a number of different ways that you can get in touch with us. Uh, those ways are email. You can email us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. If you wanted to get a hold of us on Twitter, you can DM us. We're at Mark's Madness Pod. You can also just, you know, you know, post regular Twitter stuff. I don't know. We're there. We're doing Twitter. Uh, we don't we don't engage all that much. We're mostly there for retweets and and trying to platform people mm-hmm. that, that deserve it and need need more recognition or need. And in the rare help. week that I remember to send uh, the tweet, but I that send out about our episode. And the rare week that David actually remembers to send the tweet. Uh, we, we, we do tweet when we release episodes, but that, that has become a, a rare white elk sighting, much like sighting David in our Discord server, which is the third way you can get a hold of us. Uh, if you were to join the Mark's Madness Discord, the Twitter link's in our bio, our, li- the link is in our Twitter bio. Uh, you can also email us directly for that link. We're more than happy to provide it to you to there as well if you do not use Twitter, and God bless you if you don't. Um, but you can join us on Discord where we will, uh, it, it, there's just a lot of there's a book club going on. Book club is doing Mao right now. Um, they've been doing the the collected works of Mao. I think they've got through on on practice. They're working on on contradiction right now, um, and they'll be moving through other ones. It's uh it's a little great subset of the community. There's also uh, a lot of talk about Final Fantasy 14 because you should be playing Final Fantasy 14. I'm sorry, it's the socialist you know MMO, and you should be playing it. 
Uh, and if you're not, I, I just you should. You can play for free. It's awesome. Uh, that being said, David... <laughs> I, this has turned the disclaimers have turned into a long explanation of why you should play Final Fantasy 14 and I it really has I, I feel like I've gone through a Final Fantasy 14 length journey I have no idea I don't care I, I don't Fantasy. care it's that good it's awesome it's amazing it's cathartic you should play it um, that being said David it is time for the disclaimer would you like to give it to us Sure, sure. Um, so obviously, this is a podcast where me and Nathan started. We were reading Capital together, uh, which is it worked just like any other work of theory or preferably history as well, uh, where you're in a reading group, and so that you're understanding the context, you're tying back to today, uh, you're getting the things out of it you want. And me and Nathan kind of realized, well, we're a reading group of two, and we know how to record stuff, and so maybe it could be more than two. And so that's our hope. So hopefully, uh, whatever, you know, party you're with, uh, whatever group you're organizing with, uh, hopefully in that reading group or political education that they're doing, they're reading these works. And then we can, you know, kind of be a bolt on, be another voice in the room, another person in that discussion in that reading group. Uh, say for that, say, you know, your organization is obviously doing something shorter or something that applies more to what they're doing, um, or organizing around. Hopefully, then, uh, if you're reading this on your own, we can be your reading group and we can have that discussion with you and, you know, um, tie things back to today, uh, give you the context, things like that. Uh, say for that, say it's either a book like this where we're basically an enhanced ebook uh, or a book like Capital that we talked about starting on where we summarized more. Uh, whatever it is that we can get these works more accessible to you because we want this theory out there guiding your actions. Uh, a lot of times, either where you're doing nothing uh, or you're just doing charity, this theory then can guide you to put that theory into action instead, and that's called praxis. And uh, so without the theory, it's not really praxis. Nothing's being guided. It could just be charity or absolutely doing nothing. And without those praxis, there's no point to the theory. Uh, they go hand in hand. They're tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.